0: Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. There was a time in this country when Canadians didn't really care about Canadian music, okay. No, no. Wait, we uh, let's let's start over. That's that's kind of a bummer way to start this show. So, let's go like this. There was a time in this country when Canadians didn't like Canadian music and did whatever they could to ignore it and pretend it didn't exist. Yeah, that's that's better. That's more accurate. There was one exception to this rule: if a Canadian artist received some kind of validation from outside the country, preferably from the United States. Well, then suddenly they were worth paying attention to at home. It was a mix of insecurity and what I believe are Canada's two unofficial mottos. The first is, why can't you be happy with what you have? And the other is, who do you think you are? You think you're better than everyone else? That's that's harsh, but it's it's true. And for years, ambitious, talented Canadian musicians flowed south to seek their fortune in America. Paul Anka, Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, and so on. And yes, there were those who remained in Canada. Gordon Lightfoot is one. The Guess Who is another. But they really weren't fully accepted at home until they had a hit in America. And suddenly, the attitude swung 180 degrees. Oh, yeah, them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're, they're one of us. They're Canadian. And this is the way it was for several decades. A frustrating situation for countless musicians. But then, things started to warm up a bit in the 1980s. And by the time the 90s arrived, attitudes towards homegrown talent had swung in the other direction. Not only were Canadian music fans loving Canadian bands, Canadian music was being heard all over the world. Okay, wait, no, let's uh, try that again, too. Canadian music was in demand all over the world. Some have called this the great Can Rock revolution of the 1990s. It changed everything, and here's how it started. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Originally released in May 1994 as the first single off their debut record, Our Lady Peace and Starseed. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and we're going to engage in some Canadian musical history, specifically looking at the conditions that made it possible for our music to have a coming out party in the 1990s. Now, I don't mean to minimize the accomplishments of any artists who were active before then. The Guess Who, BTO, Rush, Triumph, April Wine and others had success as far back as the 1960s. But in most cases, domestic acceptance and popularity only came after these groups had a hit in America. Let me give you an example of how things used to be. In 1965, a band from Winnipeg released a very solid garage rock single. But outside of a little regional airplay, no radio station would touch it. They wouldn't even listen to the record. Why? Because it was from a Canadian band. It couldn't possibly be good. Not gonna even bother so the label quality records came up with a way to punk these stations they sent around a seven inch single with the title of the song on the label but where the name of the band should have been was just guess who with a question mark shaking all over Radio stations took the bait, and thinking this was some hot new British invasion band, started playing the song. And to be fair, this was a cover of a song by a London outfit called Johnny Kidd and the Pirates, so they weren't, you know, completely off-base. But the DJs did not get the joke. They told their listeners that they were listening to Shaken All Over by this cool new band called The Guess Who. Oh dear. And because the song hit number one in Canada number 22 in the US, and number 27 in the UK, the group had no choice but to change their name from Chad Allen and the Expressions to the Guess Who. That kind of publicity stunt could only work once, and this still left dozens of other very good Canadian bands without any hope of radio airplay. Meanwhile, there was barely a Canadian music industry to speak of. There were a bunch of small labels, but the industry was essentially a bunch of offices that were branch plants of foreign record companies. It really wasn't a good situation. And collectively, we had some deep-seated insecurities. The majority opinion regarding music was, if it's Canadian, it can't be good. Unless, of course, another country says it is. It's really hard to overstress this anti-Canadian bias held by, of all people, Canadians. But Canada was growing up we got our own flag in 1965 and in 1967, Canada turned 100 years old. With that birthday came a new sense of pride, something that was exemplified with Expo 67 in Montreal, a world's fair that attracted attention and visitors from all over the world. National pride was on the rise and the cultural industries, including those associated with the music industry, were swept up in this new nationalism. Long story short, this culminated with the adoption of the Canadian content rules. As of January 18, 1971, all radio stations were required by law to devote 30% of the music they played to records by Canadian artists. Because there was now a legal quota to fill, an industry was built to fill those quotas. The artists were there, but now they had access to recording studios, agents, managers, promoters, venues, distribution networks, and all of the things that you need to have a domestic music scene, So, yes, this was cultural protectionism, but it was also an industrial strategy. However, developing talent to compete with the best in the world takes time. And for a while, a lot of what made it onto the radio, well, really wasn't that good. Or at least that's the way it was perceived. If you grew up with AM radio in the 1970s, you probably have an idea of what I did. That's the DeFranco family from 1973, Canada's answer to the Osmonds. And okay, to be fair, that was an international hit, reaching number three on the American singles charts. And that gave them the all-important validation at home, which removed some of the stigma of being Canadian. Some top 40 radio stations found ways around the new Canadian content rules. For example, they would take all their Canadian songs, edit them down to 60 or 90 seconds, and then jammed them all in between 11 p.m. and midnight just to fill the quotas. When the CRTC found out about that, they shut that loophole pretty quick and initiated some modified rules, making these beaver hours, seriously, thats that's what some people call them, illegal. However, the new industry infrastructure eventually started to bear more and more fruit. New studios, manned by producers and engineers with expertise, were there to help young musicians with new ideas. Radio became less cynical about Canadian talent, and new artists began to have not just national but international success. Loverboy, Chilliwack, Bruce Coburn, Rough Trade, The Paolas, Toronto, The Headpins, The Spoons, Bryant Adams, Parachute Club, Men Without Hats, Corey Hart, they all emerged as serious stars through the late 1970s and into the 1980s. Here's an example of a Canadian indie artist blowing up internationally, starting in the fall of 1979. Toronto's Martha and the Muffins with Echo Beach, a big hit around the planet through 1980, and now considered a classic of the new wave era. Let's get back to radio for a second. When the rules for Canadian FM radio changed in the 60s, things started growing in a different direction. Radio station owners just couldn't rebroadcast their AM stations on FM like they had in the past, so they had to adapt, and music followed along. AM stations were very worried that the superior sound of FM would kill them, and so it came to pass that FM stations had to work under very stringent rules. One of the original rules was that it was illegal to play a song more than 18 times a week on any given station. That meant that stations had to play more songs to fill the broadcast day. In addition to that, it was illegal to devote more than 49% of your playlist to hit songs, that is, songs that reached the top 40 on the singles charts. And that meant radio programmers had to go to albums and dig for more material. And because FM stations could run only so many minutes of commercials per day, again, a rule designed to set them apart from AM stations, there was time to play tracks longer than the standard three-minute pop song. This was FM album rock and 30% of those songs had to come from Canadian artists. This helped out bands like Rush, Triumph, and April Wine. But because there still weren't that many bands of that caliber, it also meant that a lot more Guess Who, Backman Turner, Overdrive, The Band, and Neil Young got played. So clearly something needed to be done. Things were getting better, but we still needed to juice the supply of quality Canadian-born music. One way to address that was to look at ways of funding musicians. Britain had discovered that its art school system, post-secondary schools that didn't charge tuition, gave students a little money to live on, and allowed kids with an artistic band to follow their muses, was unexpectedly turning out tons and tons of musicians. This is where a lot of British invasion music came from, and successful bands continued to be born out of art school through the 1970s. Canada didn't have an art school tradition, so we needed another way of accomplishing the same thing. We started funding the arts in 1951, but more was required. One solution came on in 1981, the establishment of Factor, the foundation to assist Canadian talent on record. Factor, which still exists today, was fabulously successful in funding emerging talent in this country when it came to things like recording and touring. When MuchMusic signed on in 1984, another program called Video Fact was established, This was funded entirely by MuchMusic in exchange for the government keeping MTV out of the country. Like radio, MuchMusic had to play a lot of Canadian content. So the goal of VideoFact was to provide money for the nascent Canadian music video industry so that MuchMusic had Canadian videos to play. This was super important. MuchMusic acted like a national pop and rock radio station. For the first time, a kid in St. John's, Newfoundland, could have something in common musically with a kid in Toronto, a kid in Edmonton, and a kid in Whitehorse. And if all these kids were also being exposed to videos by Canadian artists, well, you can see how things began to knit together. Thanks to CanCon's effect on radio, the rise of FM radio, plus the impact of Factor, Much Music, and VideoFact, Canadian-grown music was reaching more and more Canadians than ever before. And a lot of it was really, really good. And Canadians were really getting into it. Toronto's Chalk Circle and their debut single April Fool from 1986. And I picked that song specifically for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's an example of a new generation of Canadian musicians who came of age in the 1980s. And second, they recorded for an indie label called Duke Street, which had access to factor funding. Third, it not only got FM radio play, but also play on AM radio. It was excellent, fresh, homegrown music that sounded like it belonged on the radio. Right next to the best the rest of the world had to offer. Fourth, it got large support from Much Music. And fifth, they were able to embark on a career that consisted largely of domestic support. And things kept improving. Incentivized by the serious prospect of radio airplay, coverage by Much Music, along with funding assistance, the recorded music industry in Canada began to invest more in Canadian talent. Throughout the late 1980s, new acts were signed and had hits and solid-selling albums. Blue Rodeo, The Box, Pursuit of Happiness, Northern Pikes, National Velvet, Atlanta Miles, 5440, Cowboy Junkies. There were more places to play, and more people were coming to the gigs. Something was happening. But what? We'll pick it up there in a second. did Avril die? Was she replaced by a doppelganger? I'm Joanne McNally, and I'm doing a deep dive into a notorious internet conspiracy. Who replaced Avril Lavigne? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. By the time we got into the latter half of the 1980s, fortunes had really changed for the Canadian music industry. Fifteen years earlier, Canada had been small potatoes, and Canadians weren't all that interested in the music that was being made domestically. Now, though, We had all the tools American and British performers had. That's one thing. But there's a demographic component to this. By the late 1980s, we had a new generation of young music fans, Generation X. They came of age as Canadian music was on the upswing. They simply just did not grow up with the cynicism regarding domestic music that was present in the 1960s and 70s. They didn't know or didn't care that it had once been uncool to be deep into Canadian music. All they knew is that the stuff was on the radio, which must've meant that it was good, right? And that the videos were on much music, which made this music famous from coast to coast. A star system had been born and it was working. Gen X, this huge new cohort of Canadians, was looking for music to make their own. And they found a lot of it right under its own nose. The stage was set for further growth in the 1990s, and if you had to point a finger at one band that marked the beginning of what would become the Can Rock explosion, it has to be this one. After playing endless bar gigs and refining their sound, they became the subject of a bidding war between several labels, major labels too. An EP did well, but then a full album was released on September 5th, 1989. It would go on to sell over a million copies just in Canada, and this group would become one of the most beloved musical acts in the history of the country. The tragically hit with what was the second single from their debut album, Up to Here, back in the fall of 1989. Now... I'm going from memory here, but at least seven of the 11 tracks on that album received regular rotation on the radio across the country, and there were four, maybe five music videos. The hip success with Up To Here was encouraging, and when Road Apples appeared in February 1991, it maintained the momentum and built on the initial record success. It became apparent that Gen X had an appetite for homegrown music. It's one thing to be a fan of an artist from somewhere else in the world, but When someone from your country, your province, or even your town becomes famous across the land, that's a different kind of connection entirely. You want a piece of that. So do your friends. And before you know it, thousands and thousands of you are buying the records and going to the shows. Well, I can't catch her, but I can get behind anything. Tragically Hip was one of the first big successes of the 1990s Can Rock explosion, but there was so much more to come. After years of seeding the field, a new crop was coming in. 1991 saw the beginning of the rise of the Bare Naked Ladies, Spirit of the West, Sarah McLachlan, Crash Vegas, Crash Test Dummies, and Grapes of Wrath. 1992, Sons of Freedom, Boot Sauce, Lowest of the Low, More Hip, More Bare Naked Ladies. 1993, Doughboys, The Tea Party, Daniel Lanois, more Sarah McLachlan, more Pursuit of Happiness, more Cowboy Junkies. Canada paid attention to all these acts and more, and people outside the country started to notice too. Canada, long underestimated by foreign music fans, began to be discovered. We were just exotic enough, but also familiar enough to make it easy to get into this music. There was even some unusual local sensations— For example, there was a time between late 1991 and 1993 that America discovered Halifax. It was even, at one point, suspected to be the new Seattle, largely because of this band who ended up being signed to Sub Pop for their first album. Uh. Sloan, from the Smeared Album of 1992, they would go on to and continue to be a major part of the Can Rock Revolution. In a moment, we'll look at some other aspects of what's come to be regarded as a golden era for Canadian rock. There were many things working in favor of Canadian rock in the 1990s. The Canadian content laws for radio and much music. Factor, a fund paid into by radio stations and from 1986 onwards, funding from the federal government. And video facts, wholly funded by much music. Those were the funding mechanisms that made it easier for musicians to make a living. Demographics, the rise of Gen X, which had no issues with supporting Canadian music, and a sea change in music with the alternative scene taking over from older mainstream bands. We saw the rise of hip hop, which also freshened things up, and the fact that the recorded music industry in Canada was making so much money. In today's digital world, it's hard to cast your mind back and imagine exactly how much money was flowing through the system because people were buying so many records. This translated into investment in advertising, not just for Canadian releases, but for every release. Music magazines flourished, supported by record company advertising revenue, and there was tons of money to invest in touring, especially festivals. Yes, there was Lollapalooza, But Canadian music was so popular and so lucrative in the 1990s that we had several of our own Lollapaloozas. There was Edgefest, which began as an all-Canadian event in 1987. International acts were added throughout the decade, including the Foo Fighters and Blur and Green Day. But the event itself was primarily a Canadian thing. In 1997, it went on the road and played across the country with nine stops. There were eight stops in 1998 and another eight shows in 1999. Our Lady Peace, The Tea Party, Blue Rodeo, Crash Test Dummies, Sons of Freedom, Rio Statics, Tragically Hip, Headstones, Our Lady Peace, Big Sugar, and so many others took part over the years. Amazing, considering that when the first festival, the first Edge Fest, was being planned in 1987, there was real concern that no one would show up to see a show consisting of almost entirely Canadian all-rock bands. Instead, that first year, 25,000 people were there, and from then on, attendance was routinely over 35,000 of the biggest shows. Virtually every one of these gigs sold out, and one summer, there were three Edge Fests. No matter what the year, people were there to see Canadian acts like I'm Earth, another band that had been the subject of a fierce biddy war amongst several labels. Fest wasn't the only Canadian-based summer music festival of the 90s. There was Somersault, spearheaded by Our Lady Peace in 1998 and again in 2000. There was another roadside attraction, which was organized by the Tragically Hip in 1993, 1995, and 1997. And there was also Lilith Fair, a creation of Sarah McLachlan, which highlighted female artists in 1997, 1998, and 1999. And let's not forget for a second that three Canadians had the biggest selling albums in the world in the 1990s. Celine Dion's Let's Talk About Love from 1997 sold 31 million copies around the world. Falling Into You, another Celine Dion album, sold 32 million. Jagged Little Pill from Alanis Morissette sold something like 35 million globally. And Shania Twain's Come On Over sold 40 million worldwide, making it the eighth best-selling album of all time. All this growth, And all the success with Canadian artists did not end with the 20th century either. Since 2000, the country has continued to punch far, far above its weight on the world stage with artists like Justin Bieber, The Weeknd, Drake, and Arcade Fire. But if you look beyond the superstars, you'll see that many Canadian artists have contributed to an international coolness factor that's really hard to quantify by using the old metric of record sales. Remember what I said about Canada being just exotic enough? We've reached the point where we're much like Australia and New Zealand. Western-style rock, sung in English, but removed and different from what's happening in the United States and the UK. And that makes us kind of cool. It just took us a little longer to get to this stage because we do live in the shadow of the greatest net exporter of popular culture in the known universe. And our funding of musicians continues to be the envy of a lot of countries. In 2000, a new program called Radio Star Maker was added the money available from Factor. And soon this cash was instrumental in helping further the careers of Metric, Broken Social Scene, Alexis on Fire, City and Color, and many more. Loans were turned into grants and the federal government got more involved. And that kind of help has done wonders for bands like Billy Talent when they wanted to tour overseas. And that's resulted in a sizable fan base in Europe, especially in Germany. Okay. So how can we sum things up? It took several decades, but we played the long game. And on a macro scale, it paid off. The investment made by broadcasters and various levels of governments has been worth it. A study by the Canadian Independent Music Association says that for every dollar put into Canadian music, the return is a dollar 22 in economic benefits, which is pretty good. There is no reason to fear that the opportunities aren't going to get better for Canadian music going forward. Yes, COVID was a big setback, but it was for everyone. And yes, gentrification and rising real estate prices are making it tougher for musicians to find places to live and work and rehearse and perform. And yes, there were huge, huge problems when it comes to musicians earning a living wage in the streaming era. And no, streaming music platforms don't have CanCon quotas, which makes it harder for Canadians to discover Canadian music. At least that's the theory. It's not all rainbows and unicorns and chocolate, but considering what we started out with at the end of the 1960s and where we are today, I think we can probably figure it out. There are hundreds of ongoing history podcasts available for listening anytime you want. Pick a platform and just download and go. I've got my website, which is a ajournalofmusicalthings.com for music news and information. It has a daily newsletter too. We can also meet up on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. And please feel free to drop me an email through alan at alancross.ca. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. We'll talk again soon. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.